The political, religious, ethnic, and generational fault lines of Pakistan are certainly vast, and they're a clear reflection of the history of Pakistan's domestic and foreign policy. I think most of you know that Pakistan gained its independence from British colonial rule on August 14, 1947, and it established a homeland for the Muslims of Hindu-majority India. Our guest, Declan Walsh, writes, and I quote, Pakistan is a country where some of its own citizens quietly regretted it had ever come into being. So this afternoon, we are really the first organization to, uh, to have Declan as a guest because his book, Nine Lives of Pakistan, Dispatches from a Precarious State, uh, was just published today in the United States. Uh, review copies have been sent all over the world and in fact, the Wall Street Journal just a few days ago just gave it a, a glowing review, so congratulations on, on that. And in today's program, we're really going to talk not just about Pakistan, but you'll find out where Declan is today, and we'll talk about that, <clears throat> and also talk about uh, his work in, in, in Egypt. But first, let me remind you that you can purchase a copy of The Nine Lives of Pakistan by going to interabangbooks.com or I hope to an independent bookstore in your own community. Those of you who purchase from Interabang, you can get a 10% discount on any books that you have in your shopping cart and the holidays are coming up. Just type in the code DFWWORLD. Uh, if you've missed any of our programs and to keep up with them, you can always go to our YouTube channel and just type in DFWWORLD. So in honor of International Education Week, I'm so pleased that one of our council's program interns and our interns have been meeting virtually or working virtually uh, since the pandemic started. So she's gonna introduce um, our guest. Uh, Andal is a senior uh, at the University of Texas at Dallas. And at the same time, she's working on her master's degree in political economy. Uh, Andal, looking forward to your introduction. Thank you, Jim. Uh, so joining us today is journalist and author Declan Walsh, who currently serves as the Cairo Bureau Chief for the New York Times, covering Egypt and the Middle East. Uh, while his career started in Dublin, Ireland, it has since taken him across the Eastern world to Nairobi, Islamabad, and Cairo, where he has covered insurgencies, human rights abuses, software fraud, wars, and political turmoil. In 2011, he joined the New York Times as the Pakistan Bureau Chief until he was expelled from the country in May of 2013 for unspecified reasons. As Jim has said, Walsh's most recent book, uh, The Nine Lives of Pakistan, paints a vivid picture of the perplexing and often misunderstood nation of Pakistan based on the decade he spent covering the country as a reporter for The Guardian and The Times. Mr. Walsh, thank you for joining us. I look forward to your conversation with Jim. Thanks so much. Declan, welcome. Hi, Jim. It's great to be with you. Thank you very much. So where are you? Because <laughs> I've been I'm following actually, your byline the last few days. Yeah, I'm actually um, just south of Mombasa in Kenya. Um, I, uh, as as um, Andel pointed out, I have until very recently been the Cairo Bureau Chief for the Times. And just a number of weeks ago, I moved with my family uh, in the middle of the pandemic from Cairo to Kenya, where I'm, I've just started a new position um, for, uh, as chief Africa correspondent for the Times based in Nairobi. So I, I wasn't aware of that. How many countries then are you responsible for covering? 
Well, uh, theoretically dozens, um, but the, 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 this is a new position that the paper has created. And the idea is that we have correspondents already in Nairobi. Uh, we have a correspondent in Johannesburg in South Africa. We have another correspondent in Dakar in, in West Africa in Senegal. And so um, they are, they're covering the traditional beats for the Africa story for the times. Um, and the job that I have is a little bit more broad ranging and thematic. So I'm going to be not covering everything intensively, but you know, I, I, we, there will be certain lines of coverage I'm sure that I'm going to end up specializing in. Before we jump into the book, uh, and I have to say, I'm just so frustrated with our mainstream television media right now because if, if you didn't watch the BBC or read your paper, the New York Times, you would have no idea about some of the things that are happening, especially this latest conflict in Ethiopia with uh, uh, Tigray. Please tell, tell our viewers how this came, why it came about, how serious it is, it, what's the risk for the United States being drawn in? Just take a few minutes, if you would, and bring us up to date on this emerging conflict. Well, this is really a huge story out of Africa that's just broken in the last couple of weeks. It, it started on the night of the uh, November 4th, just as the US was starting to count the results of the election. Uh, the prime minister of Ethiopia, his name is Abiy Ahmed, he um, issued a statement in the middle of, of the night saying that there had been an attack on the federal military in Tigray province, which is in the very north of Ethiopia, and that this um, attack had been led effectively by the ruling party of Tigray and uh, they had attempted to, he said that this group had attempted to steal weapons from the federal military bases and that he was responding with a military operation against that against the authorities in that province. Um, so this really took people by surprise. This was not something that I think certainly most people on the outside saw coming. I think Ethiopia watchers, it was much less of a surprise to. And the backdrop to this really is that, you know, very briefly, Mr. Ahmed, Abiy Ahmed came to power in Ethiopia as a reformer uh, just over two years ago in the middle of 2018. And uh, when he, when he, after he took power, he pushed aside the old regime that had been running the country for almost three decades at that point. That government was dominated by the party from Tigray. Um, and those people subsequently fell sidelined. Uh, you know, tensions started to brew. They built gradually over a couple of years and really came to a head in September where when the authorities in Tigray went ahead with an election, a regional election, uh, in defiance of orders from the central government, because that election had been postponed officially as a result of the pandemic, Tigrayans went ahead. That really brought matters to a head. And then it kept building until 10, 12 days ago, when suddenly this military action happened. And now, you know, it's, um, it's really hard to understate how important this is for Ethiopia, but also for the broader region. You know, Ethiopia is the um, second most populous country in Africa. Uh, it has over 100 million people, or sorry, 200 million people. Um, it, is, um, it, it is a sort of strategic linchpin in the Horn of Africa. It's also a close military ally of the United States. It has over 4,000 peacekeepers in Somalia fight, you know, helping to contain the problem there with Shabab, the uh, 
Al-Qaeda affiliate, our Islamic State affiliated group. So, you know, Ethiopia is really absolutely central to the security of this part of the world. And as apparent civil war erupting there now can only spell bad news, not just for Ethiopia, but also for the broader region. Are other countries going to be drawn? Could could they be drawn in? I mean, how do you pick your sides? And and where are the Tigray oh, getting yeah. their uh, their Already, already other countries are being drawn in. So uh, some of the fighting has spilled over the border into Eritrea. Uh, uh, and we have seen um, tens of thousands of Ethiopians flooding across the border into Sudan. Um, and both of these are very fragile countries already. Eritrea is a effectively a dictatorship uh, run by a very authoritarian president, Isaiah Safwerki. Um, you know, and then Sudan is this country that had a revolution only last year against President Bashir, who had ruled that country for decades. Um, you know, right now there's a, a very fragile democratic transition going on between, uh, you know, since the overthrow of Bashir, pushing towards elections a couple of years from now, and now you have this influx of refugees, um, you know, that could have all sorts of consequences. And then the ironic thing, of course, about Eritrea, which is just over the border from Tigray, over the border from northern Ethiopia, is that this is the country that Ethiopia had been fighting for years. And one of the reasons uh, Mr. Abiy won the Nobel Peace Prize last year was because he made peace with Eritrea. Now we have a situation where it seems that both Mr. Abiy and the Eritreans seem to be exerting pressure on Tigray to try and get rid of the the um, you know the, the ruling party there. So this is a it's a complicated situation, but you know I think that the effects it will have if things don't stop soon, if if you know both sides don't pull back from the brink, could be quite dramatic. Let me remind our viewers: uh, go ahead and type in your questions, and I'll work in as many of them as I can in the conversation. Before we leave this, is there any uh, role for the United States and has the Security Council uh, been convened? No, I mean, the, the, the UN has, the, certainly the UN humanitarian agencies have been vocal about what's been happening and the UN uh, Secretary General made a statement earlier on trying to get both sides, the Tigrayans and the, Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government to step back. Um, th those appeals fell on deaf ears. Uh, the, the fighting has only gotten worse. There has been um, as reports of hundreds of soldiers dying on both sides, but also massacres of civilians, accusations in both directions there as well. So um, the, the UN has not been particularly effective so far. As for the US, it places it in a difficult position because Ethiopia is a, a close ally of the US. Um, as I said, you know, is, is, is considered to be very important in terms of stability or some measure of stability in Somalia and to some degree in Sudan as well. Um, but, you know, uh, we've not, we've heard some statements from the US, the usual about trying to get people to stand back, but we haven't seen very forceful diplomacy just yet. Well, let's, let's talk about, you, about your book. And uh, I know because you're traveling, you told me you don't even have a copy of it with you. So if I may, may read just one uh, part of it. Um, you're here, you're talking to, uh, um, there's a quote, what does it matter where you're coming from if down is where you're headed? It was a country of sighs and regrets. The only I had been where some of its own citizens quietly regretted it had ever come into being. I mean, that's just such a depressing thought, but in a sense, your book has uh, some optimism. Um, 
let me begin by asking, I didn't know how the, the origin of the name Pakistan and uh, the alphabet soup. So perhaps you might begin by telling our viewers about just where the name came from. So it, it originated in the 1930s um, at a time when uh, the independence movement, pro-independence movement from colonial rule in India was really gathering steam. And so um, it, had, it was starting to become clear at that point that British India, as it was known then, was going to become independent at some point. And the question was what shape the country would take at that point and how it would be constituted. So India is a, or was and still is a, a Hindu majority country. And the big question of the day was what would happen with the country's substantial Muslim minority. Um, and as part of this debate or this you know, political conversation that was taking place, you had various suggestions that came along. And one of them came from uh, uh, Muslim intellectuals who held a, you know, public meetings and there was a very famous poet called Iqbal, who, Muhammad Iqbal, who was the first person in about 1930 who proposed this idea for a Muslim homeland, that part of British India would be carved away and that it would be a majority Muslim self-governing area within India, so to speak. But exactly whether it would be a country was not clear at that point or whether it would be a self-governing region or whether it would be part of an alliance, really, these were, you know, not the questions that had not been decided at that stage. But there was this idea that there would be a homeland, just as in a way, I suppose, you know, years, 10, 15 years later, Israel would become seen as a, a homeland for, for Jews. So uh, the idea of Pakistan came along in the early 30s, but it did not have a name. And then in about 1933, there was a young student, well, a group of young Pakistani students who were studying in the UK. Uh, and one in particular was studying in Cambridge. And he's the one who came up with this idea for a name for this homeland called Pakistan. And Pakistan comes, it has, in fact, two separate meanings. Uh, one is, the, uh, is as an acronym. Pakistan stands for for the major constituent provinces of this new area. So it would be uh, P for Punjab, A for Afghania, or which is another name for northwestern Pakistan, um, K for Kashmir, which of course is now a disputed, mostly disputed territory uh, in the top right of the map. You can see there Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, S is for Sindh, which is in the southwest of Pakistan, and then the Stan would be with Balochistan, which is that. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. Giant but mostly uninhabited province right in the west of the country. So Pakistan, uh, the name comes from, is, is, is effectively an acronym, but it also has another name. In the Urdu, which became the national language of Pakistan, uh, the word Pak means uh, clean or 
version of clean and so um, it are pure. And so Pakistan then became also associated for Muslims or for pious Muslims as being the land of purity or a land for, you know, for, for, for um, good thinking Muslims, if you like. And so, so that, that's the origin of it. Very interesting. How is it that you ended up staying in uh, the country for so long, or basically a decade? And I think you would have liked to have stayed longer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, uh, I, I certainly didn't go there without intention. I had come from um, Kenya, actually, where I worked as a journalist for five years, uh, reporting in sub-Saharan Africa. And, uh, you know, I, I went to Pakistan. I'm Irish by birth and by uh, I was brought up in Ireland. And, I picked you know, up on that. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, when I went to Pakistan, I met a lot of people who said, well, if you're Irish, it means you're English, but actually, or you're British, but of course, um, it's not quite that. And as an Irish person, you, um, you know, unlike my British colleagues and friends, you know, we're not really steeped in the lore of the subcontinent in the same sort of way. I think for a lot of British people, they are brought up with you know, ideas about the Raj, which was British rule in India, um, about, you know, the achievements of that period. Um, there's perhaps less of a stress than there should be in the education system about, you know, the bad things that happened. But there is certainly, you know, a pride, a certain pride, especially when I was growing up, I feel, around, you know, Britain's engagement with India. And in my, in my upbringing, I didn't have much of that. So I arrived in Pakistan very much with the sort of clean slate. I didn't have a lot of preconceptions about this country. Um, and in the beginning, frankly, I wasn't too sure I was going to stay all that long. You know, um, it was, I, I arrived there in 2004. And the country was, you know, in a kind of uneasy equilibrium, I would say at that point, there was a military dictator, a military ruler, Pervez Musharraf. Um, the, a lot of the news focus at that time was actually across the border in Afghanistan, because of course, this was just three years after the uh, events of 2001 and the American military uh, deployment to Afghanistan, the Taliban government had been overthrown. So at the time for journalists, Afghanistan seemed like a little bit more of a glamorous, perhaps a little bit more of an exciting story. Pakistan seemed a little stultified and so on. And so when I got there, I wasn't sure how long I was going to stay. But then very quickly, I you know, I, I, I kind of got my feet under the table in Pakistan. I started to get around. I realized that it was this much more interesting country than it appeared to be at first glance, far more complicated, many counterintuitive things I was seeing and learning and so on. Um, and then actually from about two or three years into my stay, uh, there was, um, it started with one thing, there were public protests erupted against General Musharraf, who was in charge, and uh, these protests, you know, caught everybody's surprise, as big protests often do, and then they started to build very quickly, and suddenly this incredible street movement erupted from across Pakistan of people who wanted to protest against this military leader who had looked completely unchallengeable for years up to then, and suddenly everything started to change very quickly. You know, Musharraf went from being this leader who was best friends with the president of America, George Bush called him his best buddy, um, you know, was seen as a kind of linchpin of the war on terror, as it was known then. And uh, uh, Musharraf suddenly starts tottering. People, the streets are filling with people. His power looks a lot less certain. 
And then suddenly the events changed after that. Later that year, I returned to Pakistan with Benazir Bhutto, the opposition leader. She returned from exile. Within a couple of months, she had been assassinated at a rally by a Taliban suicide bomber. Then there was a siege uh, that erupted in a mosque in the middle of Islamabad that pitted the armed forces against these radical clerics and their followers right in the middle of the capital. Um, then we had the Taliban insurgency. Uh, and then, you know, some years later, then we had, of course, the operation, the American operation that uh, uh, located and killed Osama bin Laden. So within, you know, a short space of a number of years, Pakistan went from being, being this place, as I said, that was at this kind of uneasy peace to being this country where, as a journalist, I was running from pillar to post, trying to keep, trying to keep up with the, the pace of events around me. And so I got sucked in that way, frankly. You know, I, I, I went from... I, I really, you know, engaged with the country on a personal level. I made friends. I started to really enjoy, you know, getting around and the stories I was doing. And then also, frankly, there was just so much going on that I was kind of swept away in the whirlwind of news. Declan, what about your own security? I mean, we know, of course, uh, Denny Pearl and others who have been held hostage or, or even worse. Uh, how, how did you in, in, how, how, how did you stay safe? I um I I follow the same sort of precautions I follow most countries. You know, I um you just take a lot of advice, frankly. Uh, you speak to a lot of colleagues. Um, you know, you always check before you go somewhere if it's dangerous. Um, but in Pakistan during that period, the greatest danger was sort of geographically delimited. A lot of the worst things that were happening were in the tribal belt, which was. Um, quite difficult to access at that time. But then as time went on and the Taliban insurgency really grew, they started to carry out attacks in all the big cities, including in Islamabad where, where I lived. And so within a couple of you know, miles and in some cases within a couple of blocks of my house, you know, there were attacks and explosions. Um, and I, I, you know, if you haven't been to Pakistan, it's kind of hard to explain how striking this was at that time. Islamabad is this city that was built in the 1960s. It's a new capital. It's a relatively placid city in Pakistani terms. A lot of cities in Pakistan are huge, densely populated, really bustling, loud, boisterous places. Islamabad is almost none of that. It's uh, a city, I think now, with maybe a couple of million people. It's very spread out. It's very suburban and pretty calm. It has a lot of uh, Western diplomats and it has a lot of Pakistani bureaucrats and business people. It's relatively prosperous. So um, to, to suddenly have there on your screen, you can see you can see Islamabad, and that's the Faisal Mosque in, in the middle there, a mosque that was sponsored by the Saudi king. So in the 1980s. So Islamabad is at this time is this relatively quiet, beautiful city at the foothills of the Himalayas. And when all of this turmoil started happening, and when the uh, you know when the Pakistani when when the, the these bombs were going off, it was an absolutely traumatic event for that city. Um, and and I lived through that, you know. And we it, it certainly was. You're right. You know, it was it was it was worrisome at times. I remember with. Um, you know, there was a man who, who worked in my house with me who helped to keep house called Muslim, who I was very close with. And uh, there was a period where we would hear an explosion go off in the city. And then we would climb to the top floor of my house 
and clamber out onto the roof and take a look around to see you know where the plume of smoke was coming from and then i would invariably drive towards it and muslim would call his family tell them what had happened and assure them that he was well so that 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 was they were the kind of um, moments that we lived through during those during that time but i'm happy to report that these days that period has passed and it's now a relatively safe place again that's that's good to hear you know i i i'm curious to know if if you know about this and i'll i'll tell our viewers uh, when musharraf was in power and then even a year or two afterwards he came to dallas almost every year to meet with his cardiologist and oh i was invited to have breakfast with him and you only knew that he was there because there were some large suburbans parked around the home where he stayed in a high rent area in Dallas. But I always just thought it was so, so curious that he came here and then somebody said, well, he felt much safer coming to the United States to meet with a cardiologist rather than perhaps being in his own, his own country. That's right, Were you yeah. Aware of that? Uh, yes, I, I was aware of that. And it, it's actually not that unusual, unfortunately, for senior Pakistani politicians to seek medical treatment abroad. Um, you know, there are issues about quality of care, of course. I've no doubt that, uh, you know, the quality of care in Texas is probably some of the highest in the world. But also, there are other factors that you're hinting towards there as well. He might have, he may not have wanted to have that kind of sensitive information available to Pakistanis. Right. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is, in you know, in Texas, there are strong connections between parts of Texas and Pakistan. Even now, I mean, there are. Um, I think there's quite a large Pakistani community in Houston, and indeed, one of the big and, political and in parts. Dallas too. And in Dallas, right? And then, and in um, you know, I know that there there is a chapter of one of the big political parties in uh, Karachi, a regional party called the MQM, and I know that they have had, uh, 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 you know, functions and. Uh, they, they have organized in Texas as well, so, yeah. No, I think there's close to probably 170,000, uh, 100,000 or so in, in, in Houston and 70, 80,000 here, so a very large population. So your book, The Nine Lives of Pakistan, had a fairly long gestation. Uh, how did you go, it, it, I, I think the structure of it is so interesting. Uh, how did you pick the nine lives? Well, first on the structure, uh, you know, well, on the on the on how long it took you are right. It did take a while. Uh, my family can attest to that. Um, on the structure, I uh, before I got to a character-driven approach of of the nine lives, I started actually in the original draft with a more classic thematic approach. Um, I wanted to tell the story of Pakistan by going through the big themes, so about religion, politics. The military and so on and then as i started to assemble it i kind of realized that it was not such not as you know i really wanted this book to reach a wide readership i wanted to figure out a way of writing about the things that dramas that i'd seen but to you know convey that in a way that it would be meaningful to someone who was not a pakistan reader or a pakistan expert you know there, there have been so many great books written by people who are specialized in Pakistan, but who are often kind of writing for other people who are interested or specialized in Pakistan. I was hoping to reach a broader readership. And so as I was thinking about the structure, I was really trying to figure out how do I, you know, take this country that I'm so interested in and how do I 
break it down and repackage it in a way that it'll be meaningful to someone who might, might be coming at it pretty fresh. And so I started off with this thematic approach. And then I realized that that wasn't quite working for me. And I started to think about how when I got there, as I said to you, not knowing all that much about Pakistan in the beginning, frankly, um, I realized that a lot of the most valuable lessons that I'd learned were through conversations I had with people, not necessarily with the leaders of the country or with the people who uh, you know, were often at the headlines of the news, but it was often people you know, one or two levels down from that, people who might be prominent in their field or maybe not, but people who, you know, had a story to tell and who were willing to open up their lives to someone like me and give me access to and, and show me often warts and all how things work in the country. And so that was how, in my experience, how I had started to unpick the country. And that was uh, consequently how I thought it was best to structure the book. You know, I, I started to think about these people who I had found most interesting while I was there and whose stories um, were dramatic in themselves. Uh, in many, in most cases, I think in all cases, I hope all of the, the, the nine characters were people who were, you know, interesting and quirky and funny uh, in many cases, uh, you know, and some of them were inspiring, some of them were a little bit more sinister, but they were, you know, absolutely fascinating characters themselves. And the, the, the experiences that they had during that period also, um, you know, they, they, they told you what, they, they told you something about one slice of Pakistan, it's nine characters, but it's also in a way nine Pakistans. And, um, and at the same time, you know, their experiences as they lived through these very tumultuous times also spoke to kind of enduring truths about Pakistan. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the struggle to reconcile state and religion or um, the relationship between military and civilian leaders. These are, these are big themes that have defined Pakistan's trajectory for the last 70 years. And what I was hoping to do is to find these people who at once would have a great story in themselves, uh, who could, whose stories told you something about that period, but who also illuminated these more enduring truths about Pakistan, so that even if you took a story about what happened to them five or 10 years ago, you could even still apply those lessons to the country now. Well, it works, and, um, and also a number of these stories end quite, quite tragically, or, or the people do. I mean, their lives yeah, are... They, they, unfortunately, uh, I, it was not quite, it was more by accident than by design. But when I came to the end of the book, I realized that nearly all of these people um, died. Some of them died, a handful of them died of natural causes, but most of them died violently. Um, so I, I, I didn't think it would be a great title for the book to call it Nine Deaths. But certainly, you know, this is, this is a book about people who lived through very dynamic and in sometimes dangerous times. And some of those people paid the price. Well, obviously we don't have time to talk about all of them, but I was particularly struck by Asma Jahangir, the human rights activist. So take a little bit of time and tell our viewers about, about her. So Asma Jahangir was Pakistan's preeminent uh, human rights activist, but you know she was much more than that. She was a lawyer by training. She had really come to prominence during the 1980s, uh, during the military dictatorship of General Zia al-Haq. And 
you know, she was, she built her reputation as someone who was willing to stand up for the most dispossessed, marginalized and discriminated against people inside Pakistan. So she stood up for Christians who were being discriminated against in, uh, in their communities or in, the, in, in society more broadly. Um, she, she stood up for women who often were subjected to heinous crimes, uh, which could be anything from uh, being forced into a marriage to something much even more serious. You know, there are all, uh, some women have suffered uh, acid attacks in Pakistan. Um, other women have been killed by their own families in what are known, I think a little erroneously, as honor killings because they don't seem to involve a lot of honor in, in my eyes. So, you know, she, 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 Asma stood up for all of these people through her job as a lawyer, uh, where she often worked pro bono, but also she, she stood up for them um, in advocacy in public through the human rights groups. But then there was also one other absolutely crucial aspect to what Asma Jangir did is that she also stood up for what she believed to be the importance of civilian rule in Pakistan. You know, Pakistan is this country where the military has been in charge directly for half of the country's history and indirectly for most of the rest of the time. And Asma Jangir believed passionately that the country would only be able to take good decisions about its future if uh, you know, it had a system of civilian-led rule where the military were put firmly back in their barracks. And so in Pakistan, that's a, that's a, dangerous, that's a dangerous case to make consistently. Uh, the military is very powerful. It has a very strong intelligence agency. There have been many instances of people who have spoken against the military who have disappeared or even worse. And so Asma Jangir for decades was absolutely courageous about speaking up for what she believed to be the supremacy of civilians. Um, so yeah, that was her politics. And then the other thing to note about her is that she was just an extraordinary person. I mean, I knew her quite well. I had met her many times over the years and she was this you know, tiny woman, very diminutive, but with a great voice, incredibly articulate and passionate and utterly fearless, um, you know, went into parts of the country that other people avoided like the plague because they were afraid to go there. And, you know, she, she went ahead and she, she came from a, you know, she came from a privileged background. Her father was a landowner. Um, you know, her husband was a very, uh, is a wealthy industrialist. So she came from a place of privilege, upper class Lahori society effectively. But, you know, over the years, she leveraged that place of privilege to stand her ground and to stand up for these fights that she thought were worth it to hopefully, in her eyes, change the course of the country. Truly very courageous. Let me bring in Mike Goodman, uh, one of our viewers, and his question is, to what extent is Musharraf implicated either by commission or omission in the assassination of uh, Benazir Bhutto? Well, that is, uh, you know, that's one of the, uh, you know, million dollar questions about Pakistan that have, has never been fully answered, frankly. Um, Musharraf, when Benazir Bhutto was killed, uh, there were a lot of accusations made against Musharraf. And in fact, there have been court cases brought against Pervez Musharraf, accusing him of uh, effectively orchestrating her killing. Uh, as, as you may recall, Benazir Bhutto was killed at the end of 2007 by a Taliban suicide bomber 
in as she spoke after she left a, a political rally in Rawalpindi near near the capital Islamabad. But um, you know, there, there, at this point, there's never been much doubt that the Taliban or a Taliban suicide bomber carried out the attack. The question has always been whether there was somebody else assisting or uh, helping the Taliban or uh, giving a green and a sort of tacit nod or a green light for this attack to take place. And so, you know, Pervez Musharraf was someone who was really at daggers drawn, politically speaking, with Benazir Bhutto at that particular moment. She had just returned from exile. She had, uh, wanted, she was going to stand in an election that was due to pl take place a couple of weeks later. And she really threatened to politically undermine Musharraf who was still in charge of the country at that time. So he seemed to have all of the motive and a lot of people, uh, ap and after she died, a lot of her supporters blamed him. But And there were these court cases, but Musharraf came out and said, look, you know, I, I, I was not responsible for that because apart from anything else, um, you know, soon after Benazir Bhutto was killed, Musharraf himself was forced from power. So he says, his argument is that, well, I, uh, uh, you know, I did not benefit from her death. In fact, the opposite. So um, it, it, it's a complex question, but I think, you know, the, the, there is the, whatever role Musharraf may or may not have had in the circumstances around her death, it is indisputable that the military that he commanded certainly did almost everything in its power to scupper any meaningful investigation into the death of Benazir Bhutto. There were there have been UN investigations which said publicly that they were frustrated in their efforts to try and determine what had happened to Benazir. Um, there have been police investigations in which witnesses have mysteriously vanished or gone, and there's been a lot of evidence that Musharraf or that the military did not want the truth about what happened to Benazir Bhutto to take, to come out. Now, whether that means that that is a sign of implicit guilt against somebody in the military or whether this is just a sign of a military that doesn't want its dirty secrets to spill out in the result of an investigation. I think that is still an open question. And so by the same token is the role of Musharraf. So I apologize to your questioner. I cannot give a hard and fast answer to that, but I hope I've given a sense that, you know, it is, it is, like many unsolved political assassinations or political killings in the history of Pakistan. Pakistan, unfortunately, has a long history of unsolved murders. And it seems that the death of Benazir Bhutto, unfortunately, may be destined to become another of those unsolved murders. And also questions about certain guests, which I want to come to in a, in a minute. But before we do that, let me invite uh, another one of our interns from the University of Texas at Dallas, who is studying global business and uh, international political economy, uh, Nida Lafi. Nida, come on on, I think you have a question. Yes, thank you so much, Jim. Uh, Mr. Walsh, my question today is about the Pakistani COVID-19 response. Um, so despite being a heavily populated and developed nation, Pakistan has been most recently commended for its efforts of fighting against COVID-19 actually released a report uh, saying that the curve of new infections has flattened since it's so yeah thank you Declan could you let us know what your thoughts are about how Pakistan is handling the the pandemic 
I, and I, I, I mean, were frozen. I, I've got to, I've got, I've, I've got to admit to you, I, I have followed the story of Pakistan, COVID in Pakistan, um, to some degree, but I couldn't speak to it with any great authority. But I will say that, you know, I, I come from Egypt, where I sat through, certainly, since I've spent most of my time since COVID started, and also in Egypt, you know, in similar ways, a very densely populated country. Um, where people made a lot of predictions at the start of the pandemic that it would be very badly affected and that hasn't happened. And you know, I can only say that it really speaks to how much we don't know about COVID, that it is so hard to predict in which countries it will thrive and which ones it won't. I mean, you, you look at the situation in Pakistan, as your questioner, as Nida pointed out, it has not been as bad as people had predicted. You look over the border in India and you see really a pretty uh, dire situation over there. I'm sorry, the light's gone out here, so yep. you, you might have to. Um, you, you see a pretty terrible situation in India. Uh, so, you know, I, I think some, my impression is certainly from Egypt, some of this is down to the actions of the governments in those countries, but there seems to be a lot of uh, epidemi epidemiological uh, factors that play into this as well that are hard to um, that are really hard to understand. And I think we're only going to get clarity on why COVID has affected some countries and regions worse than others. Um, you know, at some point in the future. Yeah. Uh, Anthony McClure is one of our frequent uh, viewers, and Anthony, I was just going to ask the question that you want want me to ask. And that is, please discuss the involvement of the ISI and the ruling of the country. And if you, you know, one of the things that I got from your book is that it is less of a professional service than maybe we think, and that there's this rotation with the military. Yeah, it's um, the, the the ISI inside Pakistan. That's the Inter-Services Intelligence. Um, has this absolutely formidable reputation. And in many ways that is warranted. The ISI over the years has meddled in almost every election that Pakistan has had. Um, it has, uh, you know, it is known as the political wing of the army. It's also known as its dirty tricks division. Um, the ISI has been accused of abducting journalists, of uh, intimidating opposition political people. It's been accused of running guerrilla wars in Afghanistan and in Kashmir and so on. So it has this very formidable uh, uh, reputation. And uh, as often with these kind of organizations, while I was in Pakistan, I apologize for the light going out here again, as when I was in Pakistan, it really struck me that um, the ISI did very little to really, um, you know, uh, disabuse people of this reputation, because if you are a spy service, it really suits your, it suits your objectives if the people in the country believe that you were capable of anything. It, it, it adds to your sense of authority and your sense of power. But on the ground in Pakistan, it is a somewhat different situation or a different uh, view. Certainly the ISI is very good, I think, at um, you know, surveilling people in the cities and the towns of, of Pakistan. Um, and many of the things it is uh, are attributed with, um, it, you know, it has done. But by the same token, at the big strategic level, I think the ISI has been responsible for some terrible miscalculations in the history of Pakistan in, you know, the support for jihadi groups uh, that have, you know, in the short term often served Pakistan's objectives, for instance, by fighting against India in Kashmir or by helping to boost 
the Taliban to power in Afghanistan in the 1990s because Pakistan was afraid that if they did not control Afghanistan, or at least have influence in Afghanistan over who was running the country, then India would step in and Pakistan would find itself surrounded on its eastern and western borders. So the, the, the military and the ISI have taken these big strategic decisions that in the short term brought benefits, but very quickly started having blowback again at, inside Pakistan and against Pakistani citizens, against Pakistani state. And when I was there, we really saw that you know, up front and central. In fact, many of these problems that have been brewing for years, really just the chickens came home to roost and Pakistan was thrown into chaos. We, we saw, you know, the after 2001, the US, the Pakistani government under Musharraf allied with the US to go after Al Qaeda, but that involved carrying out um, military operations in Pakistan's tribal belt. And the consequence of that was that it riled up all of these people in the jihadi community that the Pakistani military had quietly been coddling for years to carry out, fight their wars in other countries. Suddenly now they were saying to the Pakistani military, hold on, I thought we were friends, but now you're with the Americans and you're carrying out this attack, this uh, operation in the tribal belt, and that makes us angry. And that started the country just you know, turning, the, the, the wheels started to turn, these tensions started to grow. And then that culminated in some of these groups, which had previously been allied with the state, now turning against the military, attacking, even attacking ISI officers. And so really, there's no greater indictment of the strategic weaknesses of the ISI, I think, than that particular period. It shows how things can go wrong. And then as you talk about the tribal area, how large is that? It's about the size of Belgium. It, and it, but it is spread out along the border with Af Afghanistan. And it's composed of a number of what are called uh, tribal agencies. Um, and each of these agencies, the, it, it is, it's an inheritance of the colonial, colonial era. Uh, under the British in the 19th century, they established this era this area, which you can see there on the map from uh, Wana all the way up to, I guess, Mardan, if you like, almost to Mardan. Um, th this whole area was established as a buffer zone between Pakistan and what was then, uh, well, Afghanistan in early was, was fearful, was, well, had, had some influence from Russia uh, in the 19th century and later was seen as a, a place that the British were afraid of. So you, you had, um, you know, the, the British set up this tribal belt as a, as a buffer zone. And then under Pakistan, after Pakistan came into being in 1947, it remained as this area with a special status where the normal rules of uh, the normal laws of Pakistan and even the constitution did not apply. Um, and that was that was the case on, when I visited there first in the 2000s. I took a number of trips there, and it was this place that, in some degree, some ways, was frozen in time. You know, it was um, it was uh, these tribal agencies, as they're known, the tribal districts. They were run by a, a, a man who was known as a political agent who had been appointed by the central government. Uh, elections didn't take place there. You couldn't get newspapers there like you could in the rest of the country. Um, it was a semi-lawless area in the sense that a lot of people carried weapons. Um, it, the tribal culture was very strong there. And that was why it, that made the tribal belt an excellent place 
for these insurgent groups to, to assemble, and indeed for members of Al-Qaeda who had fled Afghanistan after 2001. They fled into the tribal belt, and they found sanctuary there among some of the tribesmen who helped them, either because they sympathized with them or because the Al-Qaeda fugitives paid them handsomely for their assistance. I cannot believe how fast this hour is going, and we barely scratched the surface, which, of course, will give people an opportunity to read your, read your book. But I do want to ask you about Pakistan's, you know, in, in my view, paranoia, perhaps about India. Um, you know, for, year, for a few years, probably, what, seven or eight years ago, there was a real effort, it seemed, at the highest levels to, of negotiations uh, to bring some type of settlement over Kashmir meetings with between prime ministers and so forth. And now that is certainly not the case. Is there ever going to be a resolution uh, on Kashmir? You know, when you look at the subcontinent uh, and you look at the dispute over Kashmir and you realize that so much of Pakistan's behavior, the strategic behavior, the behavior, you know, the thinking of the military and the security establishment is dictated by uh, the fear of India, you know, you have to remember Pakistan and India have fought at least three wars and India has, because it's a bigger country and because of circumstances at the time, won most of those wars. And so for the Pakistani military, there is an absolute obsession with the India question, as you say, and that question is broadly about the rivalry between these two countries, but it is crystallized in Kashmir. Kashmir is where these tensions play out. Um, and when I was there in the mid 2000s, there's, as you say, there were certainly some real efforts on the part of Musharraf and the then um, leader of India, Manmohan Singh, to try and find, to start to find a, a resolution over Kashmir. But Frankly, over the last, since the, you know, um, Narendra Modi came to power in India some years ago, any hope of that kind of resolution has been completely washed away. Um, and in this instance, it is probably more to do with the conduct of India than it is to do with Pakistan, uh, because the, the government in New Delhi has taken a number of very provocative steps in Kashmir. It has revoked Kashmir's uh, status, status as a special administrative region. Um, it has, uh, you know, cut off the internet in Kashmir. There have been violent clashes between the security forces and Kashmiri youths who are protesting. So we've seen a lot of intense turmoil in Kashmir in the last number of years. We've also seen, uh, you know, the rise of Hindu nationalism inside India, and that has uh, led to overt discrimination against Indian Muslims in some cases. So the, the, to some degree, these are Indian problems, particularly the non-Kashmiri part of it. But when it comes to the relationship with Pakistan, then you see Pakistan, people in Pakistan looking over the border and they see you know, a, 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 a government rising in New Delhi that they think that they probably can't do business with, certainly in terms of making peace. And of course, you know, there have been violent clashes between the two countries as well. So, um, you know, I, 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 unfortunately, it doesn't look like uh, the Not a lot of settlement are great. So yeah. looking at another area where there are negotiations, what does Pakistan want in Afghanistan? 
Well, you know, that's changed over time. Uh, I, you know, there, there was certainly a period after 2001 where it was very clear that Pakistan was, in theory, allying with the United States, which, of course, had sent military forces into Afghanistan and was effectively occupying the country. And Pakistan was theoretically allying with that idea, but in reality was hedging its bets and was, you know, helping the Taliban whose uh, forces were hiding in Western Pakistan at that time and carrying out attacks. So the, at that time, it seemed to be a lot less clear. In recent years, things have clarified to some degree because as the peace talks have advanced between the Taliban and the United States, and now more recently with the government of Afghanistan, Pakistan has been drawn into that process. Pakistan has been brought in and has volunteered its services as well, ostensibly as a sort of honest broker to help to bring the Taliban to the table. Of course, uh, you know, cynics might say, well, what, how, when, how, um, what does that tell you about Pakistan that they're on the side of the Taliban? But the Pakistanis will say, well, we have this relationship with this group going back and now we are going to do our part for the peace to help bring them to the table or to pressure them to make peace. Whichever way you look at it, it is certainly clear that Pakistan uh, you know, sees a way to achieve its objectives, to remain, retain some influence in Kabul and still have uh, a government, uh, uh, still have some sort of democratic dispensation there. But things are very fragile right now. The pro peace process with the Taliban is, is, is fragile. And if it falls apart, it's unclear who Pakistan will be supporting at that point. And what are your thoughts if President Trump goes through what is being suggested or talked about uh, that he's going to reduce the troop level of the United States, which then would be followed by our NATO allies also leaving, I would assume. A, a lot of the troops have been drawn down already, but you know the, the presence there backing the, uh, the Afghan government is extremely important, just as a, it, there are military reasons for that, but also as a, as a sign that the international community led by the US is still committed to Afghanistan. If the US were to pull out, it would certainly have military effects. But I, to be honest, I think the greatest impact would really be uh, to, to leave the Afghan government looking very isolated politically. It would be a real morale, um, it, it, it would be a real blow to the morale of that government. Uh, it would leave it looking very vulnerable. There are, Afghanistan's a country that's surrounded by great powers. It's, it, China is on one side. Uh, the Iranian government is on the other. Uh, Pakistan is to the south. India has a great interest there as well. The United States, of course, has been very present. And so were the US to pull out uh, to that degree, um, you know, that would create a vacuum and it would leave open an opportunity for all sorts of forces to go in. And it's very unpredictable about how that might play out. Mike Goodman, I'll give him the last question because I think it's a way for you to conclude about how you see Pakistan now. Is, can Pakistan be regarded as a failed state? I'm, I, I'm kind of reluctant to use the term failed state in general. I think it's often a kind of unhelpful term. It, it, um, sometimes it seems a little, not quite pejorative, but it seems you know, like a judgment call about, or, or a moral judgment about a country. I think Pakistan's a country that, uh, you know, has, has a democracy for all its failings that continues to operate today. Uh, I left in, in 2008, Pervez Musharraf was the last military ruler, and there have been um, 
three uh, sorry three elect two elections since three elections since then I'm sorry um, and so you know democracy is a very imperfect thing in Pakistan for all sorts of reasons unfortunately we don't have to time to go into here um, but Pakistan is imperfect but it endures and I will say that you know the the demise of Pakistan as I say in the book has been predicted many times and always the naysayers have been proven wrong and there is despite all of the fragility of Pakistan and the turmoil that it goes through, there is also an incredible resilience that is, you know, uh, in its political system to some degree. And it's also in the character of the people. It is, a, it is a huge, diverse, fascinating country. It's very difficult for one group to rule, even a military. And so, um, you know, for, for that reason, I think that, uh, you know, Pakistan has many problems and well, difficulties but it also endures. Declan, I have, to, I have to thank you for writing the book. I have to tell you that um, apparently one of our members said that I always seem like I'm trying to sell, sell books. Um, I, I have to say that I, I don't sell books that I don't enjoy. And I really enjoyed your book. Um, like many of your brothers and sisters in your, in your field, you're a wonderful writer, entertaining, and I did enjoy your book, and I hope that people will pick up a copy um, at interrobankbooks.com or wherever they choose to purchase their books. Um, continued success, stay safe, um, and we'll look forward to continuing to see your byline now, now on all the major stories in Africa. And come see us sometime in Dallas, my friend. It would be my pleasure. It's been great to chat with you today, and um, thank you so much. Take care.